Welcome to Barry Charles Podcast, Episode 3. Today's episode, we will discuss the loss of childhood innocence. So many people will be able to relate to this through child abuse of many forms, through violence, sexual crimes, abandonment, drug use, alcohol abuse. The environment early on is very crucial for long-term development. There may, there may be some family violence that you see from happening to your siblings and parents, not necessarily just yourself, leaving you with scars that without getting help can lead to repeat offending, Not, but that's not always the case. If you have struggled with child abuse, you're not alone, you are special, you are amazing. And I hope this true story will help you out, leading you to be able to discuss some of your issues with either a teacher, a friend, if you can't talk to any of your family members about what's happened to you. Just talking about it will relieve someone of their tension inside your soul. And you can rise like a phoenix and become whoever you you are meant to be. Now I will introduce my guest. She is a lovely, warm, kind lady that has given up her time to speak about anything that's on her mind. She has come through setbacks, trauma, dishonesty, just to name a few, and come out the other side triumphant and sharing her story today will hopefully help some of you in need. They might need some help with self-love, self-awareness, security, and willingness to open up to your secrets. I'd like to introduce Jane Williams to the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm awesome. Thank you very much. And so appreciative of you coming in, sharing your time with us today. So let's begin. Um, can we start talking about first your early childhood? Um, how would you describe the young um, Jane and maybe some early positive memories you had with siblings and family? Uh, yeah, um... So I was born, I was the third daughter to my mum and dad. Um, And sort of tragedy came pretty quickly in my life when I was eight months old. And and, um, my father took his own life. So there was a lot of turbulence in the early part of my years. Um, so not many good memories, you know, for the first five years, I can't recall too many, um, great memories. Um, when I, when my father passed away, I was sent to live with my grandmother for two years. Um, just, yeah, you know, I don't know how my mum coped, you know, so the her coping was, um, I think, made her a very strong woman, having to cope with losing her husband and the father to her children. So, yeah. Um, do you know much about the actual event of the passing? Um, my dad suffered from depression. Um, so this is back in 1970, so 
the awareness around depression and what that looks like, what that feels like, wasn't there as it is today. And I know that um, not long before his passing, he was experiencing a lot of headaches and in his depressed mind, he thought he had a brain tumour and all these very dark, dark um, thoughts would come up for him when it could have been he needed glasses or something quite um, small. But in that depressed state, sometimes everything can be so huge and so big and just could be the the straw that broke the camel's back type of thing. Um, (coughs) And from what I've learnt from my mum, because, you know, I was eight months old when he passed, so... Yeah, I have no memory of him and um, just, yeah, my mum just said she thought it was an ordinary day but he had left her a note and went out to um, Lake Karapiro and drowned himself. So, you know, whether my mum's awareness wasn't as strong as, you know, it would be in these sort of days or... You know, depression just wasn't talked about yeah. back then, so it was hard to see the signs. Um, what did your mum or your siblings t- tell you about about Barry as a person? Um, yeah, my mum said he was almost like he was born in the wrong era. Like he liked to wear she called them knickerbocker shorts, which were just below the knee when no other man would wear those. And he was a little bit flamboyant with what he wanted to wear and just different where he'd fit in in these days quite well. He didn't seem to fit in in those days. Um, But just that, you know, he was a kind, caring, loving man and... You know, he he loved his kids. Um, he he loved my mum. You know that was, and and even though she went on to remarry, I believe that was her true love was yep. my dad Barry. Yeah, yep. yeah. Um, just a little bit more on the story of your mum and your dad. Um, all right. Um, what what about his um working life? What they tell you about his working life? Um, well, they um, owned a dairy, um, so they owned their own business, a dairy, which I think that sort of contributed to his um, taking his own life because all that was going under because there was supermarkets popping up here, there and everywhere and they were just were struggling yeah. to keep afloat and at the time of his death they were in a lot of financial trouble and they had to keep their lease open and things like that when the the dairy wasn't making the money to um, you know sustain itself Mm. Um, yeah so there was a lot of pressure there lots of pressure around his work at the time of his death
Um, prior to that, um, he worked in Auckland in a telephone exchange. Um, yeah, I'm not too sure on his okay. previous yeah. work here. Okay, so th this is my grandfather we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I just have a story to share with you, the listeners out there. Um, when I was a when I was a kid, I would have been about nine or ten, and I was sleeping one night, and I heard this walking down the um, hallway, and then it was getting closer and closer, and then there was a knock on the door, and the door was shut. And I just thought I was probably dreaming at the time. And then all of a sudden, um, Granddad Barry appeared in front of me. It was like a bit of a halo, like a light all around him. And he, so he came back from the afterlife to speak to me. Um, sadly, I don't actually remember much of the conversation, which was pretty sad. But I think it was very meaningful at the time. I know. I remember one part that was like, just make sure your mum's okay. Just make sure everything works out for for her. But unfortunately, I don't really remember the rest of it. I do remember after the talk that I should write it down, but I didn't have a note or paper. And then I went to sleep, and then pretty much forgot most of it, which was a bit sad. But just because I I've, ne I've never seen a video of him or anything, so it was very real. Him walking around. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now we now we understand a bit about your birth father. Let's discuss the elephant in the room. Your stepfather class. He came into your life. Do you have any memories? Because I know you were quite young. Um, any first the first meeting with him or your first experience you had with him, and what sort of personality he was like? Yeah. Well, I don't really. Um. He came into my life when I was about two and a half, three years old. <coughs> so, yeah, I can't... My first sort of memory of him is probably around four, four and a half. Um, and that was play fighting and things like that and him interacting with me. Yep. Um, yeah, but other than that, yeah, I don't really have any memories of when he first came on the scene. What about like a little bit later? What was like any, um, did you see anything with um, your mum and your stepdad? Was there any like fighting or anything like that? Or was it look like a happy home? Or um, Yeah, well, I think it appeared to be a happy home, but underneath it all... There was a lot of um, abuse going on. Um, he, I mentioned the play fighting. Yeah. Um, I remember the play fighting and him accidentally touching me where he shouldn't be touching me. And I can remember um, the first time that happened, and that was before I was five. So... I might have been four and a half around there. And um, I remember just freezing and thinking in my four and a half year old head, what's going on? And then it, it just seemed like, oh, well, 
this is an adult, so it's meant to happen. Okay, um, just a full disclosure before um, Jane gets into the story a bit more. Um, this is this could be a traumatic event for some of you out there listening, and it may have happened to you or something similar. So this true story is not for the faint-hearted. The conversation's going to get a bit personal and can be real and really revealing. Jane is sharing her history, so people who think there's no light at the end of the tunnel, there is, my friends. And truly, if you don't have, if you don't have to be con- controlled by this forever, uh, Jane, can you please explain your story around class? Yeah. Um, so the sexual abuse, like I said, happened around four for me. Um, so apart from that initial time when I thought, what's going on here, it, uh, I just got, I suppose, programmed that this is a normal thing that happens. Um, so he would sexually abuse me by touching and um, things like that. Up in, oh, Probably the frequency would be around three, four times a week it would happen from, yeah, age four. Um, So it got to a stage for me where I thought this was normal, Um, that every father, because I saw him as a father, I I didn't realise at that age that he was a stepfather. (coughs) Um, Every father did this to their daughters. Um. So when I was around, probably around eight, he started telling me things like, um, I'm not supposed to do this to you, and if you tell anybody, I will go to jail, and there's a children's jail that you will go to. And Mm. I can remember that very clearly, and it was in that moment that I think I um, shame came into my life yep. because I realised that this is wrong. This is not meant to happen. I'm doing something wrong. Because um, what I've learned about children is they blame themselves for everything um, because they can't blame the adult. They're dependent on the adult um, they will put that attachment with the adult in front of their authentic self. Mm. They will stuff down feelings and not express who they are because they need that attachment mm. to survive because they're children. And, yeah, around eight was when he started t- telling me, you know, if you did ever tell, this is what's going to happen And I think that's when it really started to screw me up a lot mentally and um, emotionally. Did did the abuse, like, get more, like, intense? Like, was he doing a lot, like, stuff smaller and then it got even worse? Yes, yes. Mm. It definitely touched, started as just him touching and then him making me touch him and making me... um, do oral sex on him um, and it 
eventually, when I was 13, that was when he raped me. Um, so it was all working up to that, you know. Um, and, and that was a, a moment for me where I had to pull on more resources to shut down all the shame and guilt and all the thoughts that were going through my mind um, when he raped me, you know, it was questions like, why did you let him do that? You know, they were never questions of, why did he do that? It was always About blaming yourself. myself, mm. yeah. <coughs> Why didn't you scream? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't I was at thirteen taking on the responsibility for stopping the abuse when that was not mine to take on? Yeah. yeah. Um. So how? Um. So what? What actually ended up stopping the abuse? Um. It was when I was fourteen. I was a teenager and I was very angry. I was, um, you know, I had a lot of stuffed down feelings that I hadn't dealt with. Yeah, yeah. And I said to him one day, I said, if you ever fucking touch me again, I'm going to tell mum and I'm going to the police. And he looked at me and he said, I will never touch you again, but I want you to know that what I have done to you is out of love, not lust. And I remember that that comment just screwed me up even more you know is this what love is love is abuse you know that's that's what it was molding my mind into and and he did try a few more times and I just said the same thing I'm gonna tell if you touch me I'm telling and that uh made him back up back off um which I held a lot of guilt for that because I thought that's all it took for him to stop. Why didn't I say that when I was eight years old? So once again, I was taking on that responsibility of it was my job to stop this abuse when no, it wasn't. I learnt um, through the counselling that I went to... um, how brave that 14-year-old was to say that. If you have another 14-year-old who hasn't been abused and a man touches them inappropriate, they they would easily say, get off, you know, don't Mm. do that. But for an abused child to to voice, Mm. you know, that, you know, I I realised that that was a very brave 14-year-old Yet at the time, and for many years afterwards, I blamed myself for not stopping the abuse yeah. earlier. So where was um, your mum at the time? Was she always out when this was happening? Or? No, no, she was always home. He he would like to say goodnight to us. Um, 
Well, he was home most of the time. She was home most yeah. of the time the abuse happened. So he would come into our room at night time or come into my room at night time um, to say goodnight. And I always wondered why um, mum never wondered why it took him an hour to say goodnight. You know, she never came in to check or anything like that. And that's when the abuse would happen. Mm. Um, you know, and it, it affected my relationship with my sisters and with um, my mum, you know, because he'd tell me things like, oh, your mother never gives me sex, that's why I need to come to you. And so in my mind, it was like, Mum, why don't you just give him sex? When, of course, that was not the case at all. You know, that was just, I think as an abuser, you want to make a wedge between the other parent and the child because it must be quite scary in the sense that, you know, is she going to tell? Is she going to be believed? But, I mean, that is the one thing that kept my silence for so long was the fear of not being believed. You know, here's my word as a child and he's an adult. You know, who's going to believe me? That that was my thinking. Yeah. So when did your mum find out? Well, it was when I was 23. Um, I had some problems that um, resulted from being abused. Yep. Because, of course, there wasn't just the sexual abuse. There was the emotional abuse and the physical abuse. He, he was a very angry man and he may only go off um, in an angry episode four or five times a year but when he did it was so terrifying you know I remember being picked up and thrown across onto the bed and just lots of hidings lots of yeah really horrible hidings but so that's all uh, you know as well as the sexual abuse so yeah, when I was 23, I said to my older sister, I said, I think I'm nuts. And she said, why? And I said, because I like p- playing with dolls and I pretend. I pr- I always pretend I'm someone else, I'm not me. Like I might be at home and all of a sudden I've got a story going on in my head that I'm pretending I'm somebody else living a different life than what I was living. And she thought I was nuts too. So she said, right, we're going to tell mum. And I said, because we we knew it was about the abuse, you know. And um, because for her, she she was abused as well, but she was good at denial where... I wasn't good at denial. It was just in in my face all the time. All yeah. The time. yeah, yeah. So we decided, yes, we need to tell mum. And how that happened is we were both married and so our partner, mm. our husbands went up because mum lived up in Whangarei. So they went up and they got got her and brought her down to where we were 
Um, but my mum's, uh, she was pretty um, strong and she wanted to know why I am coming down here, what's going on. So they actually told her before she got down here and we, we told her then, you know, that this has been yeah. happening since we can remember, um, well, since I can remember because it started so young with me. And, and, you know, at first, mum was really supportive. Um, she was, um, you know, couldn't believe it. But the first thing she did say was, well, I can't leave him. And, you know, in in my mind, I had this fantasy of when my mum found out yep. that she would leave him and then... I'd have my mum back, you know, but no, she she um she also she hadn't healed from her loss and grief from my father. So she was yeah. also holding a lot of um unresolved trauma. Yeah. Um and very dependent on my stepfather. So yeah. She went back up to Whangarei the next day. Um, my stepfather played his cards perfectly. He had his bags packed. He knew something had... He didn't... He hadn't heard that this was happening, but he he Sensed was it. quite intuitive <laughs> as well, and he knew. He knew. He got there, and Mum said, what? the hell's this, you know, what's happening? And he he never denied it. He had his bags packed and said, um, I'll just leave, I'm nothing, you, you don't need me in your life. And my mum, I'm similar to my mum, where if you pull on our heartstrings, if you make yourself, you know, if I feel sorry for you, you know, it's very hard to say, you know, yep, piss off or anything mm -hmm. like that. So he knew how to get to mum. And um, I think if he'd denied it, she she would have had a harder time being with him because she believed us. That was something that she, she definitely mm -hmm. did believe. And so they ended up staying together. Um, for my own um, mental well-being, I made the choice not to see him in my mind it was not to see him ever again yeah. um, there was a sacrifice with that because I didn't hardly see my mum for quite a few years because of that um, I'd see her briefly when she'd come down and stay with my sister and things like that but it was very yeah it was a big sacrifice to make, but by that time I had two little girls myself. Mm. And there were times prior to it all coming out that I would visit and I, I was just highly strung. I, I didn't, you know, I'd make sure the nappies were on my babies before heading to the room and, I, you know, I just kept an eye on my kids 24-7 mm. and yet... I was, no matter how much I looked after them in his presence, I still felt very anxious about what his thoughts yeah. were around my girls, you know. 
Um, <coughs> so the decision not to see him was very empowering for me. Um, and I didn't see him for seven years. Um, within that seven years, I uh, took the opportun- every opportunity that came up to heal myself. Um, there was self-help um, courses I did, yeah. personal growth courses where I know one which was a huge one. It was called Life Start where um, it was a four-day course where you, you learnt meditation and you went back into the past and faced some demons and things nice. like that. Um, I remember when the person, my friend said to me, oh, look, I've heard about this course. Do you want to do it? And the first thing that came out of my mouth was yes. And I thought, why am I saying yes? I, I'm really anxious. I, I'm scared. I don't want to do that. But yes came out of my mouth automatically. It's It was, yeah, really. Must have been an awesome feeling to say yes. Yeah, you, you know? yeah, it was. And to recognise and acknowledge all the other feelings of, mm. you know, absolute terror, you know, what what is this going to be about, you know, um, and the anxiety, you know, that's another sort of a effect of the abuses, you know, um, anxiety yeah. and low self-esteem and low self-worth, all those sorts of things that come out of um, being abused as a child. So how was that program for you? It was amazing. It, it I learned about meditation. I even went up on the stage and worked through some of the abuse in front of 50 other people. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it it opened it opened my world up to realizing that I'm not actually my abuse. My abuse happened to me, but I, I'm actually a person underneath all that crap that's come from being abused um, and, and realising, you know, that I'm, I'm a light bulb that shines really brightly. I've just got all this fly poop all around it and it's mm. dulling my light where my job now is to clean that light bulb mm. and take every opportunity that came my way to rediscover who who Jane is you know um and yeah just to start that process of self-love and honoring myself Mm. um having young kids um I presume around the same time as doing it did you have kids by then or yes yes I did you must be thinking a lot about them and trying to keep them safe and secure as well yeah, that that was a big thing for me because, you know, every child needs that safe and secure base to truly thrive and be who they are meant to be. Um, without that safety and security, you're in coping mode all the time. Um, so, so I, yes, I, I really, really held that as an importance for my own children. I remember one um, incident where my husband at the time um, said, I'm just going to say goodnight to the kids. And I, (laughs) yeah, and and I went, oh yeah, okay. 
and he was a bit longer than I thought he needed to be. And so I peeped through the crack in the door just to spy, just to see, and he was sitting there reading them a story. And then, you know, that, that's what abuse does to you. I felt so guilty for ch- checking on it. Yeah, yeah. I thought, oh, my God, if he ever knew that, that I went and checked that he was, if he was doing something to the children, he'd be so angry, you know. And yet now I view that as a very protective mother. Yeah. But at the time I, I was feeling guilty and shameful that I needed to do that but yeah and just yeah always watching where they are when you're out and knowing that it can happen at any time anywhere you know and just being very vigilant and very protective Mm. and then then you had the breakup with your husband and you had to look after three young kids um how, how was that experience um, yeah, so I was married, or well, I was with my husband for 17 years, my ex-husband, yeah. for 17 years, and, um, you know, most of that was okay, but because of the abuse, my self-worth was very low, so I was looking for my self-worth, especially from men, yeah. you know, and... <clears throat> He he was showing me my worth, but it wasn't good, you know. Like, he, he was very emotionally um, absent and, and mm. you know, if, if I didn't have that emotional fulfilment, then being intimate with my husband felt like I was just being used. Yeah. Like, I needed to be really, um, well, emotionally connected to someone to feel like I'm actually in a um, consensual, beautiful, intimate moment with them. Mm. Without without that emotional connection, it just felt like, you know, I could be anybody in this bed right now. Um, and I realised through my marriage that self-worth is not what you get from life. Self-worth is what you give. And my ex-husband was actually showing me his own self-worth by how he treated me. I mean, he, he wasn't abusive in the way that he, would, um, he wouldn't hit me or anything like that. But he'd do undercurrent things like give me the silent treatment and give other girls a lot of praise and a lot of um, compliments and never give me any, um, give other women attention and not give me any attention, um, things like that which reinforce that I'm not worth it, you know. Um, this person down the road is worth giving all this attention and I'm not, mm. you know, that must mean that I'm not worth it. So... Yeah, all that, and it built up over many years of being with him. Um, it built up where, um, yeah, I, I felt so worthless and lonely in that relationship. And that was because I was looking for that fulfilment 
from him. Mm. You know, he represented men in my life, you know, um, and he was probably actually giving what every other man had given me, you know, um, in the way of reinforcing low self-esteem and self-worth. Yeah, and not showing much emotion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and yeah, mm. they're not being emotionally connected. Um, so yeah, I made the decision that this isn't working, um, and we were going to separate um, as a trial separation. Um, in my mind, it wasn't over. I wanted my marriage to work. Um, I wanted my kids' dad to, you know, still live in the same house as them. You know, I didn't want to put my children through that. And, um, yeah, so the decision was for him to move out and we still work on our relationship. Uh, we went to counselling, which he didn't want to do the work there. And and counselling made me realise that this is not going to get any better than what it is. So, um, yeah, our trial separation ended up being, yeah, divorce and go our separate ways so so after that after that all happened um how was it like being a solo mum must have been hard at the time it was it was a lot harder than what I thought because in my mind I thought all my anger that I had was because of my um relationship with my ex-husband but he wasn't there and I was still really angry. So that sort of made me realise, hey, maybe this is my anger as well. You know, this is comes from somewhere else other than him. But <clears throat> I actually really thrived on being separated. I only had my own feelings, my own emotions to um, deal with. Um and yet it was very hard too because, you know, you, you're a solo parent. Um, at times within my marriage, I felt like a solo parent. He didn't do a lot with the children, but I did realise when we were separated how much he really, how much it was good to say, oh, look, go out the shed and see Dad, you know. Mm. So I had to dig deeper into my own resources um, because my children were going through a lot with the divorce as well. Their whole mm. world had been rocked. Um, so I had to be that solid rock for them. And, and that's where I found it really hard because, yeah, I I didn't know what my future was going to hold. You know, I'd always gone from boyfriend to boyfriend to boyfriend then to um, my husband, it was not, I'd never, ever been on my own. And that was probably one of my biggest fears was to be on my own. So, mm. yeah, all my fears were right there in my face mm. when we first um, divorced here. So how about when you, while you were a solo mother, well, you're still a solo mother, but um, um, what, um, how was it like the kids going to school and that? Did you ever worry about anything happening there? 
Yeah, I mean, I would drum it into them. I remember acting out scenarios with them around safety and things like that, you know. I'd pretend I'm someone in a car pulling over. Hey, little girl, I've got some lollies. Come into my car, you know, and give them a script on what to say. And we would practice it over and over. Um, Safety was a very, very, very big um topic for me I wanted them to be able to keep themselves safe for times like school when Mm. I couldn't be around um, and things like that although I do know that a lot of especially you know sexual abuse happens within families rather the percentage is quite small of strangers doing anything to your children Mm. but teaching them that if you don't like it you say no Mm. if someone It doesn't have to be um, a sexual touch. If someone's hugging you too hard, you have the right to say no. Because that was a big thing with me. I I struggled with saying no. Um, Really, really struggled with it. Um, Because, you know, my boundaries were all um, destroyed or, um, yeah, and... So it was just, oh, yeah, okay. You know, even with friends and things like that, oh, Jane, could you babysit? Oh, Jane, could you do this? And it was always, oh, yeah, okay. But if I was being my authentic self, I would be saying, well, actually, no, I'm tired. I don't really want to. But I would never say that back then when I was in my 20s. It was just like, you know, you got you got to keep everyone happy because if everyone happy, then it's okay. But you forget about your own happiness within all that. Yeah. Um. And then, and then you become a grandma. Yeah, <laughs> that must be special. Oh, that that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and just um. Being able to bring my own children up where I am their rock, you know, they can talk to me. They know I'm consistent, you know, I'm I'm the same. They know that if they come to me with something, they can um, get the support that they need. Um, so being able to instill that in my own children and then now seeing it in my grandchild where... You know, my daughter is her rock, you know, um, and she's able to be that rock because I was her rock. You know, that that's just, yeah, really heartwarming and just, yeah, amazing, really amazing just to see that next generation more healed than what, you know, I was or even my children, you know. Yeah. Mm. Um, so you talked a bit about self-worth and self-awareness so while you're going on this journey of being a solo mother um, how do you find your self-worth or are um, you still searching now oh yeah it, it's an ongoing <laughs> it's a real ongoing process I mean I went through depression in my 20s I went through a stage where 
I hated doing my hair in the morning because it meant I had to look into the mirror and I had to look into my eyes and I didn't like what I saw. Um, so my self-worth was very low and I, and I suppose I started to surround myself with more positive people in my life who would say really nice things to me, you know, like say you're such a calming person, Jane, and I'd say, oh, I thought I was just boring. No, you're not boring. You're really, you've got a real calmness around you and it's really beautiful and it's like, wow, you know, just being able to take a compliment and say, oh, thank you and and let it sink in, even though there's all these little voices inside trying to reject anything positive coming in because I didn't believe it myself. So being around positive people was um, a huge changing point in my life. Um, and also doing the self-help courses, getting into touch with spirituality and what that meant for me and you know being connected and that's what spirituality has done for me you know um, going for a walk in nature and just connecting with nature meditation connecting within um, because all trauma just causes so much disconnection can you just talk a bit more about meditation like what sort of meditation you the meditation that I was taught in one of the um, personal growth courses that I did was just the silent meditation of focusing on your breath, clearing your mind and just focusing on the air coming in and the air going out. Um, <clears throat> that can be really, really challenging because thoughts, are, they're there all, all the time and you're trying not to think and I remember saying to um, the man that took the course and saying to him, I, I think I only had about 10 seconds of absolute silence in that whole hour meditation. And he said, great. He said, you'll get more and more. It's like um, exercising a muscle will get easier and easier. And it does. But I mean, nowadays, I, I like the guided meditations because sometimes... It's really hard to get in that space where it's just concentrating on your breath. So there's a lot of really awesome guided meditations mm. out there that I really enjoy too. Yeah, a lot of mindfulness stuff out there too, yeah. I mean, have you ever looked at like um, mantra sort of meditation, having like affirmations or repeating words? Or... Yes. Actually, I did one, I did this other course um, and we did um, a lot of the OM meditations. And when you got like 50 odd people doing this, it, it, the vibration is amazing. So, yeah, I, I'm really into that sort of meditation. I, I can't say I do it, it that often now, but yeah, yeah. definitely there's a a lot of healing power in meditations, definitely. Nice. Um, so you've had a few jobs over your lifetime. <laughs> but um 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 which you learnt a lot about um self worth during this time. Um 
can you go through a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I've had lots of jobs where I've worked um, at a petrol station, a honey factory, a supermarket, a dairy, and things like that. And I found I'd got so, so bored so easily in jobs. And I decided one day that, you know, I really love people. I really want to work with people. Um, And by this stage, I'd done quite a bit of work on my own trauma and um, building on my self-worth. Even though I had low self-worth, I could see the worth in others very easily. Um, And a friend of mine said, oh, do you want to do this um, training to become a volunteer for for Women's Refuge? And I said, yeah, sure, you know, that'd be great. Um, It was another one of those, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And then I have all those doubts and what are you doing? You know, this is scary. But I listened to the yeah, sure voice that was inside my head. Um, And, yeah, I, I did the training, went on as a volunteer and then got employed as um, a child advocate where I would um, run playgroups for the children in the safe house um, and I was on call um, for any woman that needed support, you know, any hour of the day. And I, I felt a bit of a life purpose with that job. I was doing something to help others and that fulfilled my heart. Um, so... I worked there for about four years, but what I found um, a little bit frustrating is the woman um, in the safe house and in the community that we were supporting um, would like to talk and they'd tell me their stories and I wanted to honour and respect their stories as much as possible, but I didn't know where to take these stories. So I've always been a really good listener. And so that was enough. But that was when I decided that I think I want to get into counselling. Because listening is very therapeutic. But being able to ask the right questions to take them into a deeper part of themselves and to be able to really assist that healing process you know I needed to go um a bit deeper into study and and yeah and I did my degree in counseling um they were hard years being a single mum um still working part-time and studying full-time so yeah that there was a few really highly strung moments in those um, three years that I studied um, but yeah we got through them <laughs> and um, after study I got a job at um, counselling children and um, oh, children that had experienced abuse or trauma and neglect um, and supporting parents as well um, and I just learned so much um, in that work and just very aware of 
my own inner child would get triggered sometimes, you know. Um, would have, I remember one time I'd had a very, very um, full-on session with two little girls who'd been through domestic violence and and after the session I said to the mum, you know, we've had a really, really big session, just be gentle with them this afternoon, do something quiet. And then I look out in the car park and mum's screaming at these two kids, getting them in the car, pulling them. And and, and I, I remember crying and thinking, you're not tending to their needs, you know. I can't do it all in an hour a week in a room. I need your support as well. And, you know, there was many times where I knew I'd been triggered in a session and afterwards being able to put that aside in the moment and Mm. afterwards just seek the support that I need through external supervision or supervision within that agency, yeah. It must be hard, like, if you only got the sessions and they need a lot more than that, and the, if the family don't really care too much about it. Yeah, and, and I think that's what, and the job that I am now is, I moved on from that job, and the job that I am in now um, is still very much the same. I work with children and adolescents that... Um, have been through trauma and abuse and um, have concerning sexualised behaviour, um, which pretty much comes from um, they may have viewed porn or they've yeah. been sexually yeah. abused and it comes out in their behaviour and it's always the trauma behind the behaviour that we deal with. Um and psychoeducation around good touch, bad touch, things like that. But the trauma is usually the driver for the behaviour. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, in, in the job that I am now, it's still very much the same, but it is focused around sexualised behaviour. So there's been further sort of triggering for me, you know, um, because I have worked on a lot of my own... Um, trauma I'm able to recognize oh okay I've just been triggered that's okay I'll set that aside and bring it out and talk to I might just I might just need to talk to a colleague about it or I might need to go and have a couple of sessions of counseling you know that's why it's just ongoing work um I don't think abuse and trauma um it's not like oh yep out with that all done and dusted there's you know still um, self-worth issues come up for me and I still get surprised when someone says something real positive about me I sort of think oh wow you know um, even though I've worked a lot on that and are continuing to do the work around self-worth you yeah, say so, um can you just like describe a little bit for um, people out there that might be scared to go to a counsellor, um, just um, what uh, counsellors do provide? Um, yeah, I mean, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I tried counselling once, it doesn't work. I think the most important thing is to find the right counsellor for you. Um, 
that might mean going to two or three counsellors or um, if anybody recommends a counsellor. But even then, you might not gel as well as um, you could do with somebody else. So don't just try counselling once and, and think it doesn't work because, yeah, I know for me, that was another urge for me to be a counsellor is because I knew how much counselling has helped me. It was through counselling that I realised that that 14-year-old Jane was brave and courageous by stopping the abuse because it wasn't actually her responsibility to stop mm. it. Um, you know, I, I realised that in counselling when I was, oh, probably in my 30s and that helped heal more of my past um, and if counselling isn't you know it isn't for everybody but being able to um, stay connected in whatever way helps you to be connected it may be you know um, getting into helping other people um, it could be Go, going on heaps of hikes and, you know, getting really um, involved in keeping yourself grounded and in your body because that's one thing um, that was huge in my life was disassociation. And because and I remember when my stepfather was raping me I wasn't in my body. I was on the ceiling looking down on what was happening. And that's what dissociation is. It's a huge disconnect. You're disconnected from your body, your mind, everything. You, you're so traumatised that you can't be in your body. Um, so anything that can connect you to yourself, you know, having a good friend that you can confide in or having taking the opportunities there's so many courses out there now um, to do with self-esteem and self-worth and um, there's a lot of um, mentors out there that can help um, and just the simple thing of being kind to yourself is really important. Um, being gentle with yourself. Um, like I sort of didn't have that safe and secure base as a child. And I have that now within myself, you know. So to, to look at your own inner critic, um, to because you can have low self-esteem and millions of people can tell you how worthy you are, but unless you feel it yourself, it's, it, it doesn't stay. So <clears throat> doing anything that can help you be connected and, um, yeah, and finding your purpose in life, having that purpose, yeah. Okay, um, do you have um, any thoughts on um, children being safe and 
safe and secure in schools, um, extracurricular activities, um, like swimming and karate, like how we can have safe measures to make sure our kids are safe. Yeah, that's a real big one. Um, I think my my um, vision or my hope for schools especially is that, yes, we, we need to learn maths, we need to learn writing and reading, but can we not have classes around conflict resolution, anger, sadness? Um, what do you do when you've got a secret that you, you have to keep, you know? Any education around um, how to manage feelings, you know? A lot of kids out there don't know how to manage feelings and teachers are so overworked they're not gonna walk the children through this process of learning you know that you know you're not supposed to hit little johnny like that that you know yeah they've got 30 kids in the classroom yeah like a lot of the time yeah yeah it's just the naughty one gets in trouble yep. when you know that naughty one may be showing some naughty behaviour, but what's behind that behaviour? What's this child been through? Um, and I think teaching children more about feelings, more about empathy, feeling for others, you know, all those sort of subjects. Even their like, cultural understanding, you know? Yeah, diversity. Certain, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, all that sort of stuff needs to be taught in schools. Um, yes, a lot of people would argue that should be taught at home, and that's true, but that's... Not always the case. For not always yeah. the case, you know. So school has a lot of power to really influence our children and to really help the, them grow and flourish um, with self-esteem and self-worth and things like that, you know. Um but also, yeah, things do need to change within the home to sustain any changes that happen either in counselling and the school. You know, that home support is really, really important. But, you know, if a child has been told their worth at school, that's still going to do something if they don't get it at home. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, just just I'll give you an example of, of what happened when I was younger. We had a kung fu class where the where the instructor was touching people inappropriately. So mm -hmm. I was taken into the principal office at my school. Uh, this is primary school, um, and asked if I was inappropriately touched, and I was like thinking in my head, uh, did he or anything like that. And I was like, but thankfully I wasn't. But even just that thought of someone doing stuff like that, because my sister was there as well, you know. Yeah. And, and both of us thankfully weren't, but they could have easily had it happen. Yeah, mm. yeah. And, and it's really hard to know the best thing because people show faces, you know, especially people who are touching children. They come across as charming, lovely people. Yeah. 
you know, oh, he's so good with children, you know, oh, look, he, he's so interested and he's so this and, and yeah, that they need to come across that way to gain a child's trust, you know, and parents' trust, yeah. you know. There's abusers out there that will groom the whole family, you know. Um, yeah, I can imagine, like, you know, getting, like, you know, one-on-one sessions. You yeah. Know, whether that's music or whatever it is. Yes. You know, and if there's yes. no one else there. And even yeah. being a child counsellor, I'm in the room with a child by myself, you know. So it's about really re parents and schools really reinforcing to children you have the right to say no to any touch or any um, thing that you're not comfortable with um, and preparing your child. You want don't want them to think it's a terrible world out there, but you need to prepare them and to teach them, you know, if this happens to you, this is what you can do. Um, nobody has the right to touch you in your private parts. Nobody has the right to make you feel uncomfortable. You don't have to put up with stuff that you don't like. You know, simple, even a simple thing of Uncle Uncle Joe coming home and giving, <coughs> coming over and giving his niece a big cuddle and brushing his stubble all over her face as yeah. a joke. If the child hates that, why should they have to put up with that? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how about the abuse, um, domestic violence, um, and suicide? It's not talked about much. Uh, it's talked about a bit more now, but it's still quite prevalent in this day and age that no, don't talk about it. I know there were some campaigns that help try to bridge that gap, but I, I still don't think the answer's getting to everyone. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, a and once again, you know, if if a child, teenager or adult has that sense of connection to themselves and has safe people that they can talk to, that is probably the best um, preventive measure out there but not everybody has that and I think the more awareness that comes out there's awareness around you know the signs that somebody could be con contemplating suicide things like that that still needs to come out a lot more um, you know the media can has a lot of power to, you know, really enforce education around depression, suicide, domestic violence and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of it start, is at home. You're instilling into your children that, you know, if you have these sort of thoughts, come to me, talk to me. Um, and then you've got to be that safe place, safe person for them to talk to. So you need to really actively listen and um, not talk over your child and talk to them. You've got to really, um, really listen and listen to what is not being said as well. 
Yeah. Okay. So thank you so much for coming along today. I just have one final question for you. Um, through all your life experiences around abuse from such a young age, being a mother, working with people who who are in need of your help, um, have you got any advice for the people out there? I know you talked a bit about with the counselling, but if you got some other advice that people can hear if they if they're in need of help. Um. Yeah. Because this can also be drug and alcohol abuse as well. Yeah. That's another prevalent. Definitely. Um, you know, if, if if you could talk to one person, you know, if there's just one person you could talk to, um, even admitting things to yourself, being aware of what is going on for you, you know, um, if it's a, a drug issue, you know, being able to think to yourself, yeah, I need help, and then go to someone you trust and and maybe not look at the whole picture. If you if it's, say, domestic violence, you might think, oh, my God, I can't leave. I can't do this all on my own. But just take that first step and then the next step and the next step. Um, there's a lot of help out there. There's a lot of agencies that are willing and prepared to help. There's a lot of, you know, lifeline, there's phone contact, you know, even be able to reach out in that way. Um, and, and just, yeah, really be kind to yourself. Be be gentle with yourself, you know. Start to see things that um, you are doing well and, yeah, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be able to know exactly what to do, but just take that first step, whether it's a first phone call or visit somebody that um, you know can be helpful. Cool. I actually just thought of one more question. Um, how, um, how are you today? Like, um, with the, uh, do you still think about way back then, or is that gone from your mind? The abuse stuff, or is it something that always comes up occasionally? Um, it's gone from my mind mostly. Um, but it is something that I will carry. Um. F- probably forever, you know, like there's certain times where um, I've I've sort of learned, hey, that I've still got that record of self, low self-worth going on in my head. So the actual abuse that happens to your body and things like that, your body heals. It takes so much longer for your mind and your emotions yeah. to fully heal and... I'm okay with having to work on this for the rest of my life because it's much more manageable now and there's still little bits and pieces that come up and I still have to remind myself to be gentle with myself and and to honour myself and things like that. So, you know, I think it, it, it's, it's a life sentence, um, but at the same time, you know... Um, I'm sure it, it's 
made me understand and have the compassion that I need to do the work that I do as well. Um, I'm not saying that you need to be abused to work well with abused children, you know, but the healing from the abuse and the insights that you gain from the healing um, can really be an asset for the future. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming along today, Jean, and telling your story. You I know it might be a bit hard to talk about in front of uh, the world, but I, I thank you very much for coming along. And for everyone out there, I hope you've got a lot of insight out of today's video, and we'll see you again shortly. Take care. Thank you.